Hush, 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 here comes the boogeyman. Don't let him come too close to you, he'll catch you if he can. Welcome to Boggart and the Banshee, a supernatural podcast. I'm Chris, the Relentlessly Informative. I study ghosts, Fortiana, fashion history, and death. And I'm Simon, Chris's worst nightmare. I study boggets, fairies, urban legends, and the impossible. Well, I'm Chris. And this is Simon. And Chris, today's a special episode because we're talking about Boggett Hole Clough, but also... We're talking about your new book, The Boggarts. We are. So exciting. It was out on the 15th of February, 2022. So this is a day of rejoicing. Indeed it is. And I hope we'll be able to talk about the book a little bit later. But let's launch straight into the world of Boggett Hole Clough and Boggarts generally with a reading. One of the most famous readings and the most famous story in English folklore about Boggarts. In the days of yore... An honest farmer who resided on the top of Boggart Hole Clough was sorely annoyed by his unearthly tenant. Night after night, the sprite paid its unearthly visits. Tricks of all kinds were played. Sometimes the milk was churned, others it was overset. The beds were stripped of their covering. The maids found themselves in the morning either on the floor or with their heels on the pillows. The children started in their sleep. Their hair bristled up, their eyeballs rolled. They woke and wept. The master of the house tried every remedy, patience last of all, and when this failed, he made up his mind to flit. All was soon ready for the removal. The wagons were loaded overnight, only a few more hours, and they would be far enough from the goblin in his hole. The family, for once, contented themselves with straw beds. In the morning, they were surprised to find how comfortably they had all slept and now congratulated each other that once the boggart saw they were in earnest, he had made up his mind to part company in a quiet, friendly manner. Breakfast was soon over. Horses were yoked. The carriages moved. Thank God, said the farmer, we are flitting at last. Yes, cried a voice, but too well known, from the top of the first wagon, and I'm flitting with you. Thanks, Chris. This is the most famous Boggett story, and it's one of the most famous English folk stories. And it's particularly associated with a park just to the north of Manchester city centre called Boggett Hole Clough. But maybe, Chris, we should start off by talking about what Boggets are, because I suspect most people listening will have heard the word. But there may very reasonably be some confusion about what exactly is meant by the word bucket, not least because you and I have a past of disagreeing on this subject. <laughs> yes. Well, give us the, the Boggart basics. What what do they do? Well, I, I think we, we need to start with the dictionary definitions that you will get in the folklore guides. And then I will um, sternly disagree. Usually, when you look in folklore guides, you learn that a boggit is a small goblinoid creature. And in fact, much as in the story here, the word goblin is used. And that Catherine Briggs, for example, says a goblin has a sharp, long nose and small eyes. A a tiny humanoid, often associated with, with houses. And yet, and this is where our disagreements may begin, When you go back to the 19th century, and this is the period which I've really concentrated in on my book, a boggart is nothing of the sort, or or perhaps rather it's much, much more than this. If you went to 19th century Manchester and asked them what a boggart was, for them, the boggart was anything that was creepy and supernatural. And the only exceptions made to the word um, boggit was that you would never call something good like an angel a boggit. Boggit suggests something ambivalent, perhaps even evil, and you would never call fairies boggit. They had another word in the dialects of the northwest of England. A boggit was a creepy, solitary creature, a supernatural being of some kind. It could be a goblin, and there are cases, but there are many, many more cases where goblins and mermaids or trolls under the bridge or ghosts or shapeshifters out in the countryside. So it's this very general word. Hmm. So it's just a generic word for any supernatural creature. Why do you suppose that that was the case? 
I mean, people like defining things like this. I mean, look at all the dictionaries we've got of supernatural creatures. But why would it just be a generic word rather than say, oh, yes, that's a ghost or that's a shapeshifter or that's a will-o'-the-wisp? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. But when we too talk about the supernatural, we have general words to describe creepy things. Um, for example, we could talk about spirits or in a word that's related to bogey, we could talk about bogeys um, or entities, thinking of, of more pseudoscientific modern terms. Um, <laughs> as in old folk categories and categories of, you know, old taxonomies, let's say, there are different words that can be used to describe things. And there are more generic words and more specific words. Within Boggett, there were subcategories, and people use these subcategories quite easily. For instance, the, the most famous murderous mermaid of northern England, particularly the northwest of England, is Jenny Greenteeth. Now, Jenny Greenteeth was sometimes described as a Boggett because huh. she was a solitary, creepy creature, but she was also frequently described as Jenny or Greenteeth or Old Jenny, words like this. Okay, so you would have basically this is a dual taxonomy. You'd have the word boggart, and then you'd have something more specific if you if you wanted. So that's right. Okay. That yeah, I just wondered why this particular term. And is it is this all over England? This is another interesting question, and it's something that if I have another couple of decades, I might try and answer <laughs> properly. But what I would say is. Over the northwest of England that I know very well, you can see that in Lancashire, northern Cheshire, northern Derbyshire, the West Riding of Yorkshire, boggit was the traditional word for creepy, solitary, supernatural things. But mm -hmm. if you went a little bit to the north, the word changed. Um, in what was then Cumberland, and it's today central and northern Cumberland, the word was bogle. In the tiny English county of Westmoreland, it was Doby. And so there were different words describing the same thing. Now, what's happened over time is there's been a lot of confusion in the fairy dictionaries. And Catherine Briggs, to some extent, has to share a little bit of responsibility for all the good she's done in the world. She's also muddied the waters here, I think. And if you go in that dictionary and look at Bogle, Boggett and Doby, you'll find the sense that there's three different supernatural beings with different characteristics. Think of the long nose of the Boggett, for instance, whereas actually they're just three different dialect words for exactly the same thing, creepy, okay. solitary mm -hmm. things. And maybe for someone like you, Chris, the thing that can perhaps be a bit of a shock is that the majority of Boggett sightings in 19th century England were unambiguously ghost sightings. In I fact, know. when we, it's true, it's true. In the section in the book where I describe this, I have a subheading that's written, say it isn't true, because my, <laughs> my experience of talking to people about this is people just rebel. They can't take this. And I myself, for many years researching Boggets, just couldn't really get my head around something that looking back, I think was pretty obvious. But I, I just clung on to the fact that a ghost, a simple ghost in a house could not be a Boggett because Boggets are goblins. But no, a Boggett is anything creepy and supernatural. So if you have your 19th century ghost in the house, who's walking along with a rustling dress, peers at the door at two in the morning, that the person in the bed would very easily call that grey woman or white woman a boggit. Mm. See, now, when I think of boggarts, I don't think of a goblin. I think of some giant fiend with luminous eyes leaping out of the bushes, and then it changes into a black dog or it changes into a bull or some fiery creature. I don't think of it as Gran's ghost in the rocking chair. So, so that's, that's been my trouble is I think it's a monstrous sort of a creature that changes shapes. But it is. But it is, Chris. I, I, this is the crucial thing with Boggett. Because it's a generic term, what you've just described and that people regularly talked about in 19th century England, the last generations here of the, the good old English shape changer, these were described as boggets routinely. Mm. So you're absolutely right about that. But you've drawn your sword over this question that Gran's ghost is a boggit. <laughs> but but we, we, we have some lovely instances where people say, 
I saw the boggit. I think it's John Smith's boggit because it had right. his countenance. Right. In other yeah. words, they're, they're seeing a ghost. This is how they interpret the supernatural experience. And they're, they're calling it a boggit. And so much so, it's not even a ghost from five centuries ago. It's often the ghost of someone that they knew. Yes. And, and this recognition, I, I get that. That's my idea of, of a ghost is there's a difference between a recognized ghost and a boggart, but I'm wrong. So I, I freely admit it. You're, you were right. And I was wrong. Chris, in 10 uh, years of friendship, I've never heard you say those words. Oh, no, I no. am wrong. My <laughs> God. Well, it was it was worth waiting for. Chris, I'll just give you I'll, I'll give you one other example to celebrate the triumph of the boggit. Thinking about ghosts, I found two or three sources, including one fascinating one from the 1880s where people about to kill themselves or threatening to kill themselves say this sentence, I'll come back and I'll be a boggit to you. Ooh. And, and that, that, that's very much this sense of the boggit as a ghost. So the, the, the story at the beginning is right. Boggits are goblins, but you're right. Boggits are shapeshifters. I'm right. Boggits are ghosts. Mm-hmm. Boggits are all these different solitary supernatural creatures. And it would be very reasonable if someone came running through the door in the 19th century and said, oh, my God, Chris, I've just seen a boggit. For you to say, identify the subtype. Because boggit is this very general term. Yeah. Do you think you just mentioned that people about to kill themselves said they would come back as and, and haunt as a boggart? Are the majority? I've seen several stories of that house was haunted by a boggart who was the suicide that happened in that house. Yes. I wonder if that if those kind of boggart ghosts predominate as as suicide ghosts. I, I would say that about 80% of the boggets I've run across, and I've studied boggets now for the best part of a decade, and I, mm-hmm. I've come across not thousands, but a couple of hundred, mm-hmm. maybe even a little bit more. I would say 80% of them are ghosts of some kind. And maybe what is unusual is that these ghosts can sometimes be a little bit more baroque, let's say, than we would normally think of the the nice old lady in the the white rustling dress that comes along the corridor and then pulls the sheets off our beds. Some of these ghosts, for instance, are shape changers. Some of these ghosts are goblins. And this is where our categories just get really tangled up. But Mm -hmm. I found a couple of examples of boggets in houses who cause problems for the family and sometimes help the family, where it turns out that they were ultimately the ghosts of dead people. Oh, Okay, so it's like a house elf suddenly being revealed as a former occupant of the house. Yeah, again, this is not what you would expect. It goes against the grain of fairy dictionaries. But my Mm. suspicion is a lot of the supernatural in centuries past was identified with ghosts, with the undead. And this is something that's become rather, ghosts have become a watertight compartment over the last 120 years or so. But before it wasn't really like that. You you and I both know the way that in medieval sources, fairies and ghosts bleed into each other sometimes. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm a tidy Swiss person who wants categories to be all neatly arranged. And this is just upsetting my world. But the categories are still there. The categories are better than we think in a way. It's mm. just that they're they're ordered according to different rules. There are lots of people who study the supernatural who say, really, folklore categories about the supernatural are nonsense. They don't exist. When I started studying the supernatural in terms of what people think, I believe that. I've changed my mind over the years. I think that if you could go back and have a long ethnological conversation with a grandfather from the mid-19th century about the local supernatural, you would find that there were categories and that these categories had a logic all of their own. The problem is it isn't our logic. So you'd find your tidy categories. Uh They would just be ordered in a different way. But within 24 hours, your your Swiss mind would be humming along. It, it, you'd, be, you'd be very <laughs> relaxed, I think. Thank God for that. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we can all sleep easier now. Yeah, exactly. You've, you've named the places where these boggarts predominate. 
What is unique about what you've called boggardom? The only thing that's unique about this area, from what I can see, is a dialect, a freak of dialect, that in this area, the word boggit was used. And as I mentioned before, in other parts of England and the southern, southern lowlands of Scotland, the word bogle was used. In parts of the northeast and Westmoreland, the word doby was used. And so what, perhaps what we should really be asking is what boggit represents, let's put it this way, is that the supernatural ecosystem in which all of these strange and curious supernatural beings exist and come into contact with each other and scare local communities. So when we're talking about boggets, we're not talking about something as specific as a banshee, say. A banshee has very definite typological characteristics. It screeches, long white hair, there's the comb. With Boggit, it's not like that. With Boggit, it's like we're walking into the zoo and it's the entire zoo. And for Mm. me, what Boggit represents isn't the individual animals in the aquariums and the cage. It's the zoo. So when you're studying the Boggit in the 19th century, you're studying the entire supernatural over a given area. And that's why I find the word and its members, let's say, the the members of the Boggit Club, so exciting. I just wondered if there was something particular about the history of the area that made it more prone to this, as you say, linguistic curiosity. Not in the sense that I think each area has its own linguistic curiosities. I'm speaking, by the way, very much about Northern England. My suspicion is that the Midlands of England Uh, The Scottish Lowlands, I'm almost certain about, but also Southern England and Southwestern England will have had the same, or not the same generic words, but they would have had different generic words with the same meaning. But again, Uh this, this would take a lot of investigation and a lot of work. Well, I was, for some reason, I was twigging on, um, for example, one of the cottages that was supposed to be haunted in the Boggart Hole Clough was called Clough Bottoms Farm was also called Eastern Grange. And there were several cases of boggarts infesting tithe barns, which are associated with granges, which were ecclesiastical sort of satellite farms. And I was wondering if there was any connection between Catholicism, you know, old Catholic sites invested, more infested by the supernatural. That's really a stretch. That's just way a stretch. Well, but it, it's it's certainly true that the northwest of England was the area of England where Catholicism survived the best. Now, this uh-huh. is partly because in the later 19th century, the Irish crossed to Liverpool, um, at the mid-later 19th century, mm-hmm. the Irish crossed to Liverpool and into yeah. the county. But actually long before that, in the 17th and 18th century, despite the anti-Catholic legislation, This was, if you like, a loyalist area. And it's no accident when in 1745 Bonnie Prince Charlie crosses the border that Lancashire is one of his strongholds. It's one of the places where there was the most enthusiastic risings in his favour. Now, if you're saying, has that affected the supernatural in the Northwest? You bet. I'm I'm absolutely convinced. No, no, but there's no question of that. But is that the reason why the word boggit was used? No, I don't think so. No, no. I just wondered if the area had that long Catholic association or, or where it lingered further than in other parts of England. So, yes, yeah, definitely. We, we have lots of stories from this part of England about exorcisms and about what used to be called laying boggets or laying these Uh creatures, where you have Mm -hmm. a group of the clergy who come together. And it's fascinating that even in Protestant areas, there was often this idea that Catholic priests were better at this. (laughs) You you would have this rather strange thing where an Anglican village would call in a Catholic priest from the city, perhaps even an Irish priest, because they were better at getting rid of these (laughs) Takes an Oxford clerk to lay a bad ghost, I've heard. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's talk now a little bit about Boggett Hole Clough itself. There were lots of Boggett legends we could have chosen today, but Boggett Hole Clough is a rather curious place. Originally, it was, by Clough, I should say, that we mean what I think you would say in American English, perhaps a ravine. So this is a long, tight valley with rather steep sides. Boggit Hole Clough happens to have a stream through the middle. And it's it was a wild place to the north of Manchester in the 19th century. 
crucially, a parish boundary ran right through the middle of it. And parish boundaries were often associated with the supernatural. And this probably is not accidental. So the parish boundary went right through the middle. It was almost on the stream through the middle of the ravine. And it may have been in part because of this that it gained a supernatural reputation. We see it on maps in the early 19th century, so it's already a name. And if this had been all, it would have been several place names in the Northwest that are called Boggett Holes. But what's special about Boggett Hole Clough is that it was effectively overrun by the city of Manchester. The city of Manchester expanded very, very rapidly through the early, mid and later 19th century, only really stopped growing Um, in the decade after the Great War. And it ballooned. It kept doubling in size every 10 or 15 years. And eventually it went through the villages of Moston and Middleton where Boggett Holclough was. Boggett Holclough is a kind of no man's land between the two. Mm. But curiously, the city council bought the park in 1895, I think it is. But anyway, at the very end of the 19th century, and they preserved it as a park. And so we have exactly the same thing we saw with the Woolerton Gnomes and Woolerton Park last month. We have a park that is absolutely surrounded by urban area. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, a green island in this sea of red roofs. It's a little bit smaller than Woolerton Park. I think the park at Boggett Hole Clough is about 170. So it's it's under half the size of Woolerton Park. Mm-hmm. But it's this same kind of area which is surrounded with housing. And so is a kind of an oasis for many of the people there who want to go on a Sunday and have fun with their kids, this kind of thing. It it sounds like a really, it was really a public resource. It was a real boon to the people who were working in factories to have this green space to go play sports, children go for walks. There was a lake where you could row. It it was all very elegantly done up. They had a bandstand and it it, it sounded like it was a really wonderful place to go on a Sunday. I've been to Boggett Hole Clough and for me, it doesn't have a particularly special feel. I'm very sorry if anyone from Northern Manchester is listening to this and takes exception. But clearly it did for people in the 19th century. And I say clearly because there are lots and lots of written accounts of people speaking gratefully about Boggett Hole Club as a place that they could head off. And you did very well to, to point out that lots of these people who were going were factory workers who had one day off. And even before Manchester had expanded to start to surround Boggett Hole Club, even before that, we have references to people heading up from Manchester city centre. It was about a three-mile walk from the very centre of Manchester, so it was absolutely doable. And people would walk up there uh, with a picnic basket and they would spend wow. Sunday afternoon there. So it, it it had this special role even before it became the, the park, and then after it was a park, clearly this became more and more important. As you say, it was a place where people played sports. It often got in the newspaper for this reason. And then the other thing that we shouldn't forget is that Boggett Holcliffe was a place where at the end of the 19th century and in the early 20th century, informal speeches were made by various British political leaders. Keir Hardy, the first leader of the British Labour Party, or at least the first leader in Parliament, spoke there. Many of the great suffragettes went there to speak. And so you would have three or four thousand people who would turn out because it was a kind of a natural amphitheater, let's say, where several hundred people could listen reasonably well to someone making a political case for or against this or that cause. And that too got it a place in the newspaper. So it was an area that people in Manchester, but also right through the Northwest had heard of. But if it's such a pleasant place to go on a Sunday afternoon and a place to gather, that sounds like it's a busy place. It sounds like it's a populated place. Why the supernatural aspect to it? You'd think the supernatural would come in a very lonely, isolated forest or sort of a country area. So there are different phases for Boggett Hole Clough. And if we go back to the early 19th century, where it really was this place between two villages, I'm sure that it was 
quite simply a, a creepy place. It was on the parish boundary. It was a place that must have been very dark. It, it does have a certain somber majesty. That was my impression when I was hmm. there. But when when it became a park, I, my understanding is there were large parts of the park that were left wild until, say, after the Great War. And then it really became a place that you would go with Sunday school picnics. And Kerry Holbrook, who's one of our very best British folklorists, and I, I should say that Kerry grew up, my understanding is she grew up half a mile from Boggett Holcliffe, so she oh. knows this place far, far better than I do. But Kerry um, suggests that earlier on in the 20th century, it was manicured. The lawns were carefully cut, the... The the brambles were were not let to grow. It wasn't particularly wild. But right. then after the Second World War, it was allowed to turn a little bit more, return to the wild a little bit more. And one of Kerry's fascinating suggestions, and I hope we can talk about this in a little bit, is that Boggett Holclough has become again a place of supernatural interest in the area because it's been allowed to grow back to the wild. And that would fit exactly, Chris, with what you've just said, that you expect wild places to have this kind of reputation. Yeah, I was looking at some of the postcards in her um, dissertation, and it was such a night and day, you know, fancy bandstand, and, and then she shows what it looks like today, and it's all wild and feral. Uh, it's really an interesting contrast. Yeah, she's absolutely right about this. And if you go on eBay and look for postcards of Boggett Hole Clough, you will get these fabulous postcards coming up from the 20s and the 30s, where it was clearly, again, to use that word, a very manicured place. Everything was kept very um, carefully. And there was curiosity about the name. And I know from my own research, and this comes out in the book, that there were still stories doing the rounds about Boggett Hold Clough, oral stories in the community and also creepy experiences associated. But it, it seems to be after the war that things took a, a different turn with this question that it was allowed to grow wild. And when I went there, I, I was struck actually by how wild it was. I'm not sure it's the most attractive woodland in the world, but again, it has this somber <laughs> majesty. It's definitely got a certain spirit that is not what you would associate naturally with the red tile houses thereabout. Hmm. Okay. Now we started off with the story of the flitting and the boggart that was going to flit with the family. What does that have to do with boggarts in the woods? It sounds more like it's a, a house spirit. Well, this is something else I, I wanted to, to come at you with a little bit. When you say that you would associate the supernatural with wild places, my experience is that that's certainly true of fairy lore, that if you go up on top of the mountain or you go to the hill over the hill, there you will often find associations with fairy lore. But as far as Boggett law, and this is generally true of Britain's and particularly England's solitary supernatural creatures in old parts of the kingdom. My experience is they tend to be not in wild places, but semi-wild places. And this is particularly true when these semi-wild places are on the edges of communities. Hmm. So the association between, in, in the story that you read, a Boggett in a house who lived in a nearby hole... For me, this is quite natural because what we're talking about is a house, a farmhouse that's already solitary. It will be on the edge of the community. It's on its own. Uh, Boggett Holcliffe used to be between these two villages and there were a number of farms on the edge or just within the clough. And it's, 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 for me, it's exactly the kind of place that you would expect to find these solitary supernatural creatures on the edges of human communities. One of the things I say in the book is that in the end, when we think of fairies, we have to think of a mirror that's held up to humanity. Fairies are a kind of peculiar mirror image of our society. This is something I've talked about before when we've, we've mentioned fairies. But solitary supernatural folklore creatures in England, for the most part, are shadows. There are shadows. They're rather two-dimensional, uninspiring creatures, mm. but above all, they're about fear. And the place that you find them isn't within the communities, it's on the edge of the communities. And Boggett Old Clough, in that sense, is the perfect place. And yet, I think of all the ghosts that haunt houses, you know, manor houses and, and castles, 
the Tower of London. Those are squarely in the middle of civilization. They're they're not on the edge. Right. I disagree with that. I, I would say that manor houses and castles, if you go to any number. Oh, OK. I see. Yeah. Geographically. Geographically, they're on the edge of settlements. Mm. Okay. Uh, if you go to a manor house in an English village, it will very rarely be in the centre of the village. You're right. It, You're it'll right. be off to the side. And so in that way, the manor house is the perfect place. Now, um, I, I'm not going to comment on the Tower of London because if I do, I'll have to say I was wrong. But um, <laughs> with, 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 with the other things, I think that you definitely have the supernatural in cities. There's no question about this. Sure. Yeah. Usually... And again, this might be an area where you and I disagree, but my experience of this is it's usually what I think of as the private supernatural. So this house is haunted and the people who live in it consider it to be haunted. But generally speaking, it's not everyone on the street who says, oh, my goodness, this is a haunted house. Whereas in villages, you very often have the public ghosts, these ghosts that either walk around the village or are associated with one of the more memorable buildings in the village. Typically, the manor house, the vicarage, or the pub, one of those three. And Mm. typically, those three buildings, if they're haunted, if they have this reputation, are found off just on the edge of villages. Now, I've done a lot of work with this in the northwest of England, and I've kind of convinced myself that I'm right in that area. But my suspicion is that these are rules that could be more generally applied. And I'm not sure this is something that I hope in the years to look at in other British contexts. Um, And perhaps other people will look in other countries. But for me, that's that's the rule of the supernatural I followed. And I found it quite an efficient one. All I can think of is M.R. James, you know, depend on it. There are rules, but we do not know what they are. (laughs) But but Chris, this is where this episode, perhaps, of Bogget and Banshee is a little bit unusual in that normally we talk about supernatural experiences, Um, whereas here we're talking perhaps almost as much about folklore. And you have to make this distinction, I think, between the human laws of the supernatural and the supernatural laws of the supernatural. In other words, as humans, we have all this classification. We have all these ideas about what the supernatural is. And who knows if we're right or wrong? And then we have the supernatural itself, what Patrick Harper calls the demonic. Who knows what (laughs) rules are there? I mean, of course, maybe the supernatural simply doesn't exist. Maybe there are no rules other than the human rules. Maybe it exists and it has no rules. Maybe it exists and it has rules that have no relation to the rules that we've made up about it. But I I think it's worth making that distinction. And you and I created this podcast, I would say, because in the end, we're interested in the interface of the human rules and the supernatural rules, just trying to get glimpses, these places where the human and the supernatural world meet. And Boggett Hole Clough is an excellent place for that. But I suppose that today we're not talking so much about a unique supernatural experience as we have done on other days. No, we're, we're talking about classification or, or one type of supernatural entity, really. I was interested to see how you did some of your research in terms of you had previously done the fairy census and you're still working on the second fairy census, you did a Boggart census. How did you do that? Where did you go? For me, this was an incredibly exciting moment in the survey. I, I had a um, dear friend called Linda who she knew I was working on Boggarts and she talked to her father-in-law, Arthur, who I believe is now in his 90s. I hope, Arthur, that I'm not Um, doing you an injustice here, but I I think that's right. And she spoke to him. So Arthur clearly has memories going all the way back before the Second World War. He he grew up in Lancashire. And she spoke to him about what a boggit field was. This was something that had come up in my research. I just didn't take this seriously because for me, boggits are something that I've studied before the First World War. And in a rather arbitrary way, I just decided to cut off with the First World War. Ah. But Linda sent me this text, and Arthur had these ideas about what a bucket field was. And this is something that was recorded in, what, 2018, I think, mm-hmm. um, 2019. 
And I thought, my goodness, this is like reading something in a Victorian or Edwardian newspaper. This is really exciting. And at that point, I started to think, well, maybe I, I could actually do, as I did with the fairy census, a Boggit census, where I reached out to a wider group of people and asked them, not as with the fairy census for Boggit experiences, because wrongly as it happened, I thought that no one would have had Boggit experiences and be able to remember them. But I wanted to know just what the word Boggit meant. And I started this with great fanfare in 14 Times. David Sutton, the editor there, very kindly allowed me to run the appeal. It also appeared on Folklore Thursday. And from there, it started to leak into the newspapers in the northwest of England. I appeared on the radio in Cumbria making my case. And actually, I didn't get that many responses. And then it was suggested to me that I use Facebook. And this transformed everything. And I went from having about 70 responses. And I should say at this point that I encouraged negative responses because I was going to the places where there used to be Boggit belief. But I also mm. said, look, if you've lived there for 70 years and you've never heard the word, I want to hear from you too, please. And the result of this was that in the end, I got to about, I think it was 1,100 or 1,200 responses. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but mainly thanks to Facebook. And it, it's been it, it's been so exciting for me because for me, usually studying the 19th century supernatural, which is what I spend most of my time doing other than kids and work, it's a little bit of an abstract thing because it's in the past. And yet here, in many of these accounts, perhaps I shouldn't say many, but in some of them, I was clearly seeing the language and the ideas of the 19th century that had survived beyond the Second World War. And I found that just goosebump territory. I found it really exciting. I'll, I'll give you a silly example of this. I love continuity in history. Um, in the 1890s, a Calderdale newspaper, Calderdale is my home district in the on the edge of West Yorkshire. A Calderdale newspaper had this wonderful expression, um, in and out like green fern boggit. And there was no explanation given. And I was absolutely mystified by this. I had no idea what it meant. And in the middle of the boggit census, a, an elderly gentleman from Haworth. So this is just, what, 15 miles away. Haworth is the, the land of the Bronte sisters. Just 15 miles away from the 1890 report said with no knowledge of this, Whenever I and my brother used to run in and out of the house, my grandma used to shout at us, you're in and out like Butterworth Boggit. Oh. And so the expression, the Boggit changed in one account, it was Green Fern, in another it was Butterworth Boggit. But clearly it was just a phrase that meant you kids are running around like crazy, you know, shut the door and stay out, this kind of thing. And there were, there were examples of this in language, but also in supernatural ideas. And it was, it was really wonderful. You'd have these great moments where at 11 at night, you would find someone tapping away, leaving you on a Facebook messenger and account. And I was amazed how many of these people using Facebook late in the night were in their 80s and 90s. Ah, so would you say the majority of the people that responded were in their 80s and 90s? Or did you hear no. from younger people? The cutoff date I gave, I asked for people to respond who were growing up in the 70s or before. So mm. there were some people who were in their 40s, then it was 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And when I began, I would have said that the older people were the better. But one of the things I learned from the Boggett census was that actually there were, there were strong geographical biases. And so, for instance, um, to the south of Lancashire, there's a county called Derbyshire, the north of Derbyshire is what's called the Peak District. It's a very hilly, mountainous area. Right. My goodness, the villages there, there were people in their 40s who had grown up with this idea of boggets <sighs> and grown up with the 19th century of boggets, not the, the goblins of modern fantasy literature. Right. That is remarkable. I, I was really surprised by this. It's one of those things that in the end, you change your worldview slightly because it's just not what you expected. And, and you've got discussion of this in your in your new book, right? That's right. I'll talk a little bit later about how you can get this book, but I dedicate my, my favorite chapter in the book. It's what I call Boggit Death. And it's really just a description of how people in the northwest of England stop talking about Boggits and by extension, stop believing in Boggits. 
but it also talks about these rare this archipelago of survival these small villages in the more rural parts of lancashire or in um, the hilly parts of Derbyshire, where Boggett belief in the traditional way has to some extent survive. Which leads me to the obvious question. Are there Boggarts in America? Ha, ha, well, <laughs> Chris, there are Boggarts everywhere. But oh, there's Boggarts everywhere. There are okay. Boggarts everywhere. But I, I did come across a couple of traces. So let me just try and recall First of all, Boggett was often used as a nickname in the 19th century. You would often call someone John the Boggett or Boggett simply. And in fact, this custom in parts of the Northwest continues to today. And I found someone who told ghost stories, I think in Missouri, I hope I've not got this wrong, in the late 19th century, who was actually called Boggett John. And this cannot be a coincidence. There must be Mm. some kind of connection there. I came across, this is a lovely example of Boggett's cropping up in the US, a very earnest folklore collector collected a folk story about Boggett's and Brownies in 1920s Florida and was very excited by this apparently exotic story. Unfortunately for this person, the story that was told orally was actually a Victorian children's story that had been widely (laughs) printed. But then I did find one example, and this is the only example of Boggett in North America that really moves me. And I think we're in the Carolinas, but there is a Boggett Hall in part of the Carolinas that was presumably named by some immigrant from Lancashire or from, from one of the other northwestern counties in perhaps the 17th, perhaps the 18th, perhaps the 19th century. And the name just remained there, a kind of fossil. So there was at least a little bit of transference across the Atlantic. And in, in looking at my collections of folklore, I've found things that act like boggarts in terms of shape-shifting, very, very scary shapeshifters. But I've not actually found anyone referring to these things as boggart. Well, I'll have to hope that one day you and I can visit the Carolina's boggart hole together and um, see if we can dig anything out of that. But it's good to know the shapeshifters were there in North America in the 19th century. I read a very good forthcoming book in manuscript form over the weekend, And in that book, the author says at one point that I I like this phrase, niches are more important than names. In other words, if you're going to Hmm. study something, it's better to study shapeshifters and not worry too much about the terminology than Uh be foolish enough to write a 300 page book on boggets as I did. Now, I I hope I've justified this. I hope the book will be good and interesting for those who buy it and read it. But I do have some sympathy with that. And if I was going to write another book in the future on the supernatural, I would pick a characteristic supernatural Mm. creature like a shapeshifter, particularly when you start to leave a given geographical area like the Northwest it starts to become a bit dangerous to fixate on terminology, much as I love these transatlantic examples. I did find something about a boggart ball in the 20s, I believe. And I would... Boggart ball? Yeah, I I failed to find it before we went on the air. I, I was trying desperately to find my reference. It was like a masquerade ball. What a strange um, thing to call it. So this yeah, is in the yeah. US, a boggit ball. That's right. And I, I will find it eventually and send it to you. But it was such a an anomaly because why wouldn't you just call it a ghost ball or a phantom ball or, you know, supernatural something? But it was actually called that. So maybe it was just the alliteration they were going after. Or maybe they misspelled bogey. <laughs> don't know. It's it's a very unusual choice. Well, look, if by some miracle upon miracle, my my book gets republished, this will certainly be going therein. I promise I'll give it to you as soon as I find it. Chris, I I think we should also talk a little bit more about Boggett Hole Clough in the post-war period. I, I mentioned before Kerry Holbrook, who's this great British folklorist who is a local or was a local. She grew up there. And Kerry has done more serious work, a more serious version, let's say, of the Boggett census in that I was getting just often sentences from people, whereas Kerry did sit down interviews 
with right. locals mm-hmm. about the folklore of the park. And this was something that I also ran into doing the book. And in fact, I give several pages over to this. Though I think here for the definitive study, we're going to have to wait for Kerry's work. And I'm sure it'd be worth waiting for. But essentially, Boggy Hole Clough is a very unusual place. Not so much for what happened in the 19th century, where frankly, it was just a it was another creepy place on the edge of a village. But for what happens in the post-war period, what Carrie found when she was doing work was that there were lots of local legends about goblin-like boggets or giant boggets or different kinds of humanoid creatures living in the park. And I ran independently into exactly the same thing in the boggit census. There seems to be a real belief in the area. When I say real belief, I'll qualify that in a second. But this is real, let's say real idea in the area that boggets are these small goblins that hide in the trees and that if children are naughty, they will sometimes be kidnapped by the boggets and taken down to their lairs. Having said that, the boggets don't sound that nasty from what I can see. And I suppose the context for this is we're back to the Woolerton gnomes and the kids again. It's children going to the park in the 50s, 60s and 70s, particularly as Kerry says, when the park was allowed to grow a little wild. And just coming up with this, giving, I suppose, some kind of personality to the park. And who knows, perhaps having their own supernatural experiences. But I was very excited in the Boggit census to get accounts where people would say, oh, my goodness. Um, Yes, when we were kids, we used to see these little black gnome figures behind trees and this kind of thing. And once one of us saw it. All of us saw it. Uh I also had a mother who talked about going to the park today. And here you see folklore under the microscope, just as it's coming to life, I think. And she says, yes, I I still say to my kids that if they're not good, the boggets will come and get them. And then she wrote in brackets afterwards, perhaps not great parenting skills, but it works. And I, I love the idea in 2019 when I did the Bocket census uh, of this six and seven-year-old there with their mom being a little bit obnoxious and the mom lifting up a finger and saying, the Boggets, and the two kids immediately behaving. <laughs> I, I, and this seems to have caught on in the area that the idea in the 19th century, the Bogget of the Clough, we're not even really sure what it was. But today, if you ask, it seems to be related to this idea that there were a series of these small little goblins living in the park. And in that sense, Boggit Hole Clough is exciting because it's the only place in what used to be the Boggit lands where the Boggits have not just survived, because as I said before, there are some villages where that happened, but where they've become something new, where they've been reinvigorated and transformed. We're like the fairies who get fairy wings. A hundred years ago, fairies didn't have fairy wings. Today, they do. There are lots of fantasy books where we read about goblin boggets, but this is the one place where people talk about goblin boggets as being part of the supernatural fauna. Uh, reading Carrie's dissertation, I was I was struck by the phrase about how She said, the resurgence of folklore two generations later just as neatly coincides with the park's reversion to its natural, untamed state. Scary stories, she says, it appears, do not flourish when they're not provided with an appropriately scary setting. And the more Bogotor Clough resembles the deep, dark forests of fairy tales or of Hollywood's horror movies, the more it becomes the subject of frightening folk tales. I just, I just love that. It's a great sentence. And just to, uh, just to say that Kerry did this as not her doctorate, but her undergraduate dissertation. Oh, I'm sorry. When I, no, no, no. But I, I just want to say how impressive it was. It was a dissertation, but I believe it was for undergraduate work. Oh. Um, and so it's even more impressive. This is back in 2010, so it's 12 years ago. But well done, Kerry, that in your early 20s, you were capable of putting this great piece of work together. And I don't know if Kerry's right or wrong about this, but it's one of those great theses that you could think about. And, well, does the fact that they stopped mowing the lawn mean that the Boggit returned? Maybe. I can say that in the Boggit census, that when people talked about the park, it struck me how often trees came up, that the goblins were hiding behind trees. And that certainly gives the sense 
It's this slightly wild land off to the edge, away from the gardens where families are putting down their picnic baskets. So Kerry might well be right about that. Yeah, she mentions how the, the, there are ancient links to a mythical past, the trees are. And people can stand in the very forest where the boggart was set, you know, said to roam. So they've, they've got a link with the past, a very tangible link. Yeah. Boggart Hole Cliff, one of the fascinating things about the place is its name. Uh, Boggart Hole, essentially, in the dialects of the northwest of England, means a boggart lair. That's all it means. And it's applied mm-hmm. to different creepy places. And interestingly, it was often used as a name within houses. If you had a room under the stairs or a loft space that was a bit creepy, it was often called the Boggit Hole. Oh, seriously? An no, absolutely. I, I, oh. one, of the, one of my saddest moments in the Boggit census, I came across a family that remembered in the 50s or 60s that this little room downstairs uh, had been a boggit hole. And huh. then the, the, the woman in question who'd grown up in the house wrote, and then we converted it to a shower. And this seemed the most <laughs> undignified, the most <laughs> undignified end for a boggit possible. I, I mean, well. it, it really is. But so a boggit hole is a boggit lair. Now, usually in the landscape, I've tracked by now about 20 boggit holes in the northwest of England and one even in the northeast of England, which is a very strange place. But all of them are sunk subterranean places. They're places that go down into the landscape. Boggit Hole Clough works in that way. The problem is that in that place, you wouldn't expect the word clough to come up. Usually in Lancashire, it would just be called Boggit Hole because a clough is really a hole. It's often Ah. called a hole in Lancashire English. And so this begs the question whether this name is is what place name experts call the pleonastic name. In other words, the same word element is just repeated. This seems very unlikely to me because people in those communities knew what both words meant. But the Mm. other possibility is that within the clough, there was a specific place that was Ah. the boggit hole, that there was maybe a particularly deep part of the clough where a boggit was supposed to live. The other possibility, and this is always a problem when we come across places called Boggit Hole or Bogle Hole or Boggit Field or Bogle Lane, Pixie Lane for that matter, even some of the fairy place names. The other possibility is that the people in the area were not telling us that a Boggit particularly lived there, but rather it was a place of supernatural evil. It was a Ah. place where you could meet generally supernatural spirits. And I, even after having written this 300-page book, I, I'm not sure if that's right or not. Certainly, I think there is this idea that there are certain, I, we, we'd agree about this, I'm sure, there are certain places that you're more likely to have a supernatural experience. Whether these places like Boggit Hole Clough were one of those, I'm not sure. What I can say is when I looked at the 19th century sources, and the early 20th century sources for Boggit Hole Clough, there were five or six supernatural beings associated with this relatively small area. Uh, For example, there's a nut nan. This is one of these creatures that was supposed to guard nut trees from uh, greedy children. And she runs around screeching, even though she's headless. There's this great detail. (laughs) so, So there were various bogeys and horrors uh, there in the clough. What, what do you think about that, Chris? Do you think when you come across places like that, when we know that a place is haunted, do you think that going back, according to the human rules of the supernatural, what we're being told is there's one specific thing, or are we being told this is a place where you might drop through the trapdoor into another world? And that seems to be also a relatively modern idea. Uh, they've there's a thing called portals. You know, people talk about, oh, this is a portal area, oh, meaning there's a lot of supernatural activity. As you say, you might open a trapdoor to another world. Yeah. I was interested to see that there were several respondents to the census for describing the park as very deep and frightening. And there were areas they considered dangerous and wouldn't venture into alone. I don't quite know what to make of that, whether it's just a, a, a form of panic, 
a literal forest panic just because it's dark and spooky, or if there's actual increase of crime in the area because people are hiding in the bushes. Um, so I'd, I'm not quite sure what to make of that. Uh, I certainly believe there are plenty of places that just feel wrong. I've cert- I've been in plenty of those places. We were looking at a house to buy and I'm like, uh, somebody was murdered in this basement. We're not buying this house. <laughs> so it just very uh, atmospheric places. I, I mean, I, I'm sure that we, we both agree about this, though, that perhaps we're coming at it from a slightly different direction. Um, I, I'm a great walker and I'm always struck by the way that certain stretches of the countryside have different feelings. Right. So it's part of interacting with the landscape in the end. And of course, if you interpret the world in supernatural terms, it's very easy to start to say, ah, yes, this is a supernatural place. I'm fascinated by you talking. I hadn't noticed that, but the word deep in in reference to Bogget Hole Clough, because it, it does, there's a falling off of the land. And of course, that that's often something we find with solitary supernatural creatures, the idea that not quite their subterranean, but they're chthonic. They're down there, just just out of sight. The, the other thing, Chris, that you said that I, I find really fruitful to think about, and perhaps I'm now regretting this, curse you, uh, <laughs> for, not, for not putting this in my book. But if you have a place between two villages, it, it becomes a place, as you, you talked about crime, and you're, you're absolutely right, that people go out of the community to do illicit things. Yes. Um, and this could be anything from courting couples all the way down to, forgive me, but someone shooting up with heroin, you know, out of mm-hmm. sight, finding mm-hmm. a place, someone living in one of these terrace houses, not wanting their family to know about this unfortunate habit and going down into the, the clough to find a place that's a little bit out of the way. I was interested when I did work on Boggett Hole Clough in the old 19th century newspaper databases, several times I came across references to suicides there. People have gone there to commit suicide and you can kind of understand. They they didn't want their loved ones to find the body. They wanted to be in peace to pluck up their courage to do this awful thing. And so I think what you say there is interesting. These places off to the edge, or in the case of Boggett Hole Clough, this island of wild in an urban sea, it's not just about the supernatural. There's a series of things that can come out there. Is there actually a cave? In Are there caves in Boggart Hole Clough? Right. So there are a couple of places in northwestern England where Boggett Hole refers to a cave. So your instincts are very good here. The first, When I became interested in this story, the first thing I did was I sent an email to the organization that looks after the clough, uh, um, a charitable, a voluntary organization. And I said, are there any caves in the clough? And they wrote back a little impatiently saying, no, emphatically. It's just not that <laughs> kind. But it's, it's not that kind of geology. So if there is, that. if there's a hole within the clough, it's got to be something more, a point where the clough just fell a little bit more deeply, a point in the clough that was darker and creepier. But that's how I would interpret it. Wasn't there a place, though, there's a big stone that the, the boggart is supposed to be buried under? That's right. Kerry is very good at coming up with material. But there's an idea that the boggart is there under a stone, or at least a boggart is there under a stone. And I think the local folklore is that when you're walking past, you have to say, hello, boggart, or something along these lines to stop the bogged escaping. And it's a lovely combination of modern and Victorian folklore because that idea of a spirit being laid under a stone is very, very common in the northwest of England. But this touch, which for me is in the nicest possible way, a little bit Disney world, that as you're walking past this stone, you say, hello, bogget, is is Mm. fabulous. It's it's a very post-war touch. Yes, it is. Yes. As I can't imagine anybody doing that in the 19th century. Chris, maybe we could come now to talk a little bit about sources for Boggett Hole Clough. And the uh, the place that's really good to start is with Kerry's work. Now, the problem, and I hope Kerry, if she ever listens to this, won't take this as a criticism, is that Kerry did write, I think 12 years ago now, 
this undergraduate dissertation on Boggett Hole Clough that's very, very promising. But since then, she's moved on to other things. She's done several talks on Boggett Hole Clough, and she's also published a short article. So there's Kerry's work to look at, and hopefully, 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 there will be stuff in the future from Kerry on this. There's also lots of lovely 19th century sources. And there's, I wrote an article about a decade ago too on Boggett Hole Clough and its sources. And that's available on my academia site. And we'll put a link in. And I said lots of things in that article. I read it today in the bath that I now utterly, utterly regret. Studying Boggets has been a, a, a series of lessons for me. And there are things in that article that I believe now I'm just wrong about. But the basic sources are there, and I hope they'll be of interest. In studying Boggarts, though, does that mean that they're such shapeshifters you can't get a grip on them? I would give a much more practical explanation, and it's something along the lines of I'm stupid. That, <laughs> what, what, but I don't know if you've ever had this experience, Chris, but clearly you and I, we live and we make most of our money as researchers. We write, we give talks, we, we do these things. This, this is our life. And for me, clearly, to some extent, this is an intellectual pursuit. And I find it shocking that even though I studied boggets for, it took me about four years to understand what a boggit was. And it's not that I was just twirling my thumbs through that period. I was reading lots and lots of material, but I just came up against this very strong goblin shapeshifter idea oh. and that boggets are not ghosts. In other words, Catherine Briggs was standing behind my shoulder saying, oh. no, Simon, no. And for me, I find it a little bit scary how long it took me to get my head around this. And so I wrote articles in the transitional period where I said things that I now think are simply wrong. Well, we'll forgive you because it's, now you've got the truth published in your new book. As a penance, I actually, in that book, I gave a footnote where I put my worst sentences on the bogget. <laughs> So I, I did make a kind of public apology on that front. And so, yeah, and then we come to this new book on Boggets. It's by an author named Simon Young, and he's very, very excited about it. My original name for the book was The Bogget, A Study in Shadows. And Chris, you've mentioned this subtitle a couple of times because, of course, we've talked about this book. And indeed, you helped me extensively with it through the years. But the subtitle now is the rather more concrete folklore history, place names and dialect. But this this book is now available now. It came out on the 15th of February and um, I was very, very excited, but I still haven't seen a copy. And I've seen that the book has still not reached Amazon. And hopefully oh. I, I'm telling myself this is because all of the printed copies sold out um, in pre-purchase, but I, I'm telling myself that, but I know it's not true and that we will have sold, you know, 30 or 40 copies before the book came out. Uh, I imagine that this is down to COVID supply lines and the like. But if you're listening to this in early March and God forbid you should want to buy this and it's just not available anywhere, please be patient because it will soon be coming online. And so there is this book, it's 300 pages. It costs £50 from Exeter, but I saw that Amazon was selling it. I seem to remember for something like £45. So it can be bought a little bit cheaper. But if you're breaking into a cold sweat, as I say this, there is a kind of alternative. I brought out a second volume with the Boggit. And this is a book called The Boggit Source Book. And it's a collection of about 40 or 50,000 words of 19th century newspapers and other ephemera on Boggit. There's a section on Boggit place names, which is just a list of all the Boggit place names that I was able to find. And then most excitedly, there is the 90,000 words or so of the Boggit census. There's the entire Boggit census there. Now, that costs about £50 as well. But we have an agreement with Exeter whereby that book can be downloaded free of charge. And I will put a link 
on our podcast page to this, or you can get in touch with me and reach out, or you can just search it on Google. But if you don't feel up to spending £45 on the Boggit folklore, history, place names, and dialect, then please download for yourself free of charge the Boggit Sourcebook. It will be a different experience, but hopefully in its own way, just as interesting. I'm sure it will. I, I'm really looking forward to reading the entire manuscript because I've only I've read bits of it along the pro in the process. So it's uh, it's just so exciting. So congratulations, Simon. Many many thanks. For me, I, I think I've published now nine books, and mm -hmm. I have to say this is the book I am I'm happiest with. Maybe it's always like that, Chris. When the book comes out, oh yeah, your favorite. Yes. And which then... which of your children is your favorite? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I take your point. I take your point. Yeah. I was going to suggest that we finish with this lovely reading from Samuel Bamford. Samuel Bamford was a 19th century Lancashire writer. He actually was remembered by many people in Lancashire as a radical. He'd been a, a radical chartist um, back in the 1830s, but he became, after a time in prison for his political views, a writer. He was never an outstandingly successful writer, but he was a personality and his works are really interesting because there are many supernatural stories. And Sam Bamford clearly believed in the supernatural in a way that many hoity-toity middle-class people, whether they believed or not, they certainly wouldn't say so in print. And this is from a, an incredible episode from Boggett Hole Clough. Um, Bamford lived for several years on the edge of Boggett Hole Clough. He grew up in the nearby village of Middleton. So this was a place that was very, very well known to him, revered by him, I should say. And this is an incredible episode of people that Sam Bamford claims he knew. Uh, they were named Plant, Chirrup and Bangle. So these are typical Lancashire nicknames. And the three of them decided very unwisely, this is not something that we're advocating, they decided very unwisely to go to Boggett Hole Clough on um, Midsummer Night to find the seeds of St. John's Wort. And they brought with them a skull and they carried out a ritual to gain magical power. And it went disastrously wrong. And there is just this wonderful description of them being in the middle of Boggett Hole Clough, sometime we must guess in the 1820s or the 1830s, where the supernatural bites back. Now, how true this is, of course, we have no idea, but it's an incredible passage. So, Chris, over to you. They have just given the incantation. And now it's the supernatural's turn. Plant, chirrup, and bangle looked and perceived by a glance that a venerable form in a loose robe was near them. Darkness came down like a swoop. The fern was shaken. The upper dish flew into pieces. The pewter one melted. The skull emitted a cry and the eyes glared in its sockets. Lights broke. Beautiful children were seen walking in their holiday clothes and graceful female forms sung mournful and enchanting airs. The men stood terrified and fascinated and bangle gazing bad, God bless them. A crash followed as if the whole of the timber in the cliff was being splintered and torn up. Strange and horrid forms appeared from the thickets. The men ran as if sped on the wind. They separated and lost each other. Plant ran towards the old house, and there, leaping the brook, he cast a glance behind him and saw terrific shapes, some beastly, some part human, and some hellish, gnashing their teeth and howling and uttering the most fearful and mournful tones, as if wishful to follow him, but unable to do so. You've been listening to Bogger and Banshee, a supernatural podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please leave a review, as it helps other people find us. Those cursed algorithms. <laughs>